welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Ross Piper. Ross is the CEO of Christian Super. Prior to this, Ross was the Chief Operating Officer at World Vision Australia. Ross has over 25 years' experience as a leader in the finance and not-for-profit sectors, including roles as the Head of Corporate Risk at Macquarie Group and Senior Director of Operations for the Middle East and Eastern Europe at World Vision International, where he worked closely with peer-to-peer microfinance programs. Upon his appointment of CEO, Ross remarked that Christian Super has a track record of operating with purpose and intentional impact within the superannuation sector. Ross was also a founding board member of AgroInvest, a microfinance bank providing credit services to agricultural enterprises in rural Serbia and Montenegro. In addition, Ross was an advisory board member of the Shared Value Project, a regional community of practice committed to driving adoption and implementation of shared value strategies among leaders and companies, civil society and government organisations in Australia. Ross is currently a board member of the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia and Seed Initiatives. Ross, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's a pleasure. Okay, so... I want to frame this conversation around the shared value lens. Um, shared value is such a, a common concept these days in, in the work that, that we each do and, and broadly across the sector. So can we begin by defining what shared value means and what the shared value project entails? Yeah, so shared value, it's an interesting concept. It's clearly one that is uh, gaining traction across a whole range of stakeholders in the market now, both those on the commercial side as well as the not-for-profit and also the the government side. And I think for me, I mean, at at heart, the concept of shared shared value is essentially looking at where is there an intersection or an overlap um, between the the missional intent of uh, private and public sector or non-government actors um, through the lens of impact. So where is it that... Uh, businesses can be generating and delivering uh, social purpose and value as part of their mission, Um, equally for the not-for-profits or for government actors as well, looking at how in doing their particular uh, mission or purpose um, they are generating impact and value. I I think at the heart, I guess, it's a recognition that every organisation, whether in the business or the for-purpose space, is generating an impact, um, and that impact may be profoundly transformative in terms of communities. It may be tangential to the, the core mission that the business is doing, but shared value is effectively about understanding that impact, looking at how that can be uh, accelerated or optimised um, in the business sense. It's, it's then how can that um, element of or output of doing work within the business 
uh, be potentially leveraged for competitive advantage in the marketplace. And so consumers may choose to work or support companies who are, who are doing good as part of their, their core business. So it's not about um, charitable good for the sake of charitable good. It's really about looking at the core mission and purpose of an organisation and the value that it can create in societies and communities and the environment um, in, in part of fulfilling its, its core work purpose or mission. Yeah, thank you. That was a really good explanation. In your view, what role has consumer sentiment played in the the rise of shared value as a consideration for for leaders? So I think it's been quite profound. Uh, it's obviously evolved over time, and uh, I guess we've seen over the last twenty to twenty five years the movement from uh, you know the beginnings of so called triple bottom line reporting um, or you know, shareholder activism. Uh, you know, applying sanction or, or, or leverage or advocating for companies to um, more intentionally measure and amplify their social impact and, and ideally to then mitigate the negative impacts of the way they're working. So I think we probably saw it emergent initially through, um, as I say, triple bottom line reporting. Uh, we're now seeing a, a far more um, integrated approach in my view, and I guess what we're seeing more and more is that what historically may have been labelled from a, from a corporate side here, you know, checkbook philanthropy or, uh, uh, you know, for companies to, if you like, contribute to a social good through a, a charitable or a philanthropic channel, uh, we're now seeing a mainstreaming of that where, you know, businesses at their very core are asking the question, where is it that we can create and leverage value as part of our core business? And I think that consumers are, are responding to that in a number of different ways. Um, to speak to the sector that I currently work in, the finance space, you know, interestingly, it's been a tough year in the wake of a, a royal commission um, and, you know, public trust in the finance sector is, you know, arguably at its lowest level ever. Um, if there's any silver lining on that, it's that, uh, particularly in this case of superannuation, um, you know, any Australian who reads the paper or listens to the news is at least for a moment asking the question, where's my money? What's it actually doing? Uh, is there a way that I can be making choices as a consumer uh, that not only um, serve my own uh, retirement needs or interests in the case of superannuation, but equally uh, are doing good things for the planet? And so I think that consumer drive and push certainly in our space has been uh, significant and we are seeing that accelerate and grow. And I think that that's a good thing if you have empowered uh, consumers who are advocating for change and influencing uh, corporate behaviours in, in ways that I think are, are good for society and, uh, and, and for the environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're just wrapping up AGM season at the moment or annual general meeting season and I've been speaking with a few different executives in recent weeks about some of the trends that were seen in AGM season this year and what I've heard is that there has been an increase in I think it's called hostile AGMs whereby shareholders raise um, things like environmental matters that perhaps weren't on the agenda and really push those to be considered um, by the boards of organisations. So I guess that's just one example of how consumers are actually being empowered and, and being mm. activists. Uh, yeah, very much so. And I, look, I think there's an interesting lens here 
if you use the analogy of a carrot and a stick, um, we are seeing um, many examples, certainly in the recent AGM season, where the stick approach is being used um, for a whole range of reasons, whether it's around remuneration practices or environmental practices, etc. And there's an absolutely uh, important time and place for that. But I think, interestingly, the, the, the more substantive change, if you like, comes with the carrot. And that's, that's where companies that are ostensibly doing the right thing or are um, you know, seeking to quantify and amplify the positive social good that results from their business uh, should be winning market share. You know, the consumers, uh, you know, when, when consumers vote with their feet, what you end up with then is lasting uh, systemic change. Um, I think at times if it's just about the stick, you may get a, a response or reaction, but um, the underlying causal factors or corporate behaviours may not change in the longer term. And so we're seeing both of those dimensions play out in the current markets, which I think is, is positive. Um, it'll be interesting to see uh, you know, how the next six to 12 months goes in that regard. Yeah, it will be. Um, as you know, EY released a report uh, this week on investor attitudes towards environmental and social governance, and that report has been released to um, to uh, to EY's network. and And some of the the conversation that's been had around that is how generally Australian consumers are more concerned with people issues than environmental issues. So things like human rights, um, modern slavery and supply chains seem to carry a greater weight or have historically carried a greater weight than environmental considerations like climate risk. Um, I think that is quite a generalisation, but Mm. is that a trend that you have also witnessed? Yeah, look, to speak from our perspective, I I don't think we could... could, um, classify it in, in as, as binary terms. Uh, look, I think we, uh, obviously, as a profit-to-member industry, super fund, we have a, um, a very clear uh, uh, f- philosophy and, and set of values that underpin all of our investment choices and our way of working as an organisation. I think we see across our membership, um, which is Australia-wide, we have about 30,000 members, about $1.5 billion of funds under management. We see quite a broad range of areas of interest. Um, our, as a fund, we, uh, we're 100% of our fund is, is ethically screened, so we screen out the bad stuff. We positively screen or target uh, companies that are doing good things for society or for environment. Um, obviously, active ownership is part of our um, ability to leverage and advocate for change, and then, of course, impact investing itself. And so, across those areas, we, we see... Um, we see deep interest and passion across environmental issues, societal issues, governance issues. Um, it's quite broad. Our, and, and I suspect, uh, depending on which part of the, the market you're looking at, there would be a, a range of different interests. But, yes, I mean, it's in, look, any engagement that we're seeing from consumers or shareholders, whether it's around people-related issues, environmental issues, I think is, is a positive thing and, and we certainly welcome it. Mm. And I echo your point that we can't view it in binary terms and and partly the reason for that is that there's no environmental issue without human ramifications. Yeah. They're not they're not distinct and and similarly I think we'd find that a lot of modern slavery supply chain issues also have some environmental ramifications to them. Um so the two are definitely not mutually exclusive by any means. Yeah, very much so. And I I think 
you know, there's something powerful about the hygiene of sunlight, if you like, or that, or that as companies and disclosure practices are improving all the time, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, development issues or some of these challenges are complex and there is an inherent interrelationship between these things. Um, even if we look through the lens of the sustainable development goals, you know, each of these 17 goals in and of themselves are not mutually exclusive. And so there's an interesting question, again, about advocating for improved practice in particular areas, but those who work on the development side of that equation will absolutely understand uh, that uh, these factors are all very closely connected. And so, you know, any kind of advocacy or positioning or choices that are taken, I think, need to consider that, that, that holistic lens in mind. Now, I want to ask you one other question on on that EY report that was released before I move on to the next topic. Um, An interesting finding or something I found most profound in the report was uh, in 2017, approximately 7% of investors said they would consider climate risk in their investment decisions. And now as of 2018, that is up around 47, 48% Mm. of investors. So that is an enormous jump to see in a 12-month period. What's been so significant in the past 12 months, do you think, that that has led investors to, to consider climate more? Yeah, look, I think there's been a number of different factors there. Firstly, we absolutely celebrate the, the, the really quite profound uh, growth that we're seeing around interest in that space. And we're seeing that across um, even in the, the responsible uh, investment market, the you know, recent benchmark reports in that space. Again, we see this market growing by a significant quantum each year. I, I think there's a range of factors that are driving that. Um, part of that, I suspect, is the simple, um, you know, the media cycle, the general awareness around and the conversation around climate change. I mean, there's probably not... Uh, there's hardly a day would go by where there's not some kind of fairly robust debate being played out in either the print or other news media around the merits or otherwise of climate change. So it, it is something that I sit, sits very close to the consciousness, certainly at a political level. Um, it absolutely polarises discussion. And again, we're seeing that play out in some of the politics at our own national level and, and in fact, at a global level as well. So there's the awareness, I think, has grown. Um, I think uh, there may be an underlying demographic shift here where there's just a view that those... Uh, you know, particularly those you know, emergent, you know, 20, 20 to 25 year olds or a younger demographic are, are kind of rising up and saying, what, what is the society we are going to leave um, what, that we're building for the future? It, recently in New South Wales, we saw a, a, a number of um, activities by, by school students actually around advocating for basically saying politicians aren't doing enough here. Uh, even in our own superannuation space, there's been a reasonably a high-profile case this year where there's one fund has been um, taken to court uh, by one of their members because uh, the, the individual believes that the fund themselves are not taking into account uh, climate change risk in the long-term portfolio of, uh, of the individual's investments. And so on a whole range of fronts, we're seeing the current um, conversation around climate change continuing to evolve. Uh, whether or not people agree with the science or whether they're... I mean, there's, there's a polarised discussion or debate right now. The awareness is greater. And I think we are seeing that translated into consumer choices and decisions, which, again, I would say has to be a good thing. Yeah, 
Yes, I agree. And um, I am aware of that case that you're talking about and we'll include a link to that case in the show notes because it is it is a really interesting one and it'll set an interesting precedent for the future. Um, to link back to shared value now, uh, as we've said, you are the CEO of Christian Super. How does the concept of shared value actually manifest in practice for Christian Super? Yeah, it really sits sits at the core of who we are. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're a profit to member. We're an industry fund um, uh, started in the mid-1980s, and so the fund's been running for a number of years, uh, has always um, uh, had a very strong values alignment or, in fact, obviously a faith alignment in terms of the choices of how we invest. Uh, one of the first funds in Australia to go 100% ethical or, or you know, uh, apply a screening process across the full portfolio, but then subsequent to that, um, one of the early pioneering funds in the impact investing space. And so I think there's always been a view taken by our board and by management and by staff in the fund to say um, we exist to obviously serve our members in all aspects of their retirement and their well-being, et cetera, but a firm view that that, that desire to serve and maximise those outcomes is not at all incompatible with um, investment choices and decisions that are actually that not only don't harm the planet or harm society, um, not only accelerate or amplify the good practices of companies, but actually go even further to say we will actively build an, an impact investing portfolio that um, will 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 very clearly um, uh, position a, a portion of our portfolio um, that is directly investing in societal change, environmental benefit projects, microfinance projects in all parts of the world. Um, as a pension fund, what's critical for us is that you know, we're not a charity. We have to be investing in a, with the lens of a commercial rate of return. Um, we're investing in the funds of our members. And so um, for us, we don't believe at all that there's an incompatibility between investing in that way and maximising the financial outcomes or returns for our members, and in fact, that impact portfolio, so that 10% of our $1.5 billion is what we call our pure impact portfolio, um, now running for you know, 12, 13 years, so we've got a good track record of historic performance, but has in, in fact met and, and exceeded its all of its investment target objectives whilst at the same time um, driving and hopefully leading a, a model that says you can invest capital for good and not... Um, not compromise on the, the financial returns that you need to be um, acquiring for your members. And so the idea of shared value, uh, again, you know, who are our key stakeholders? Clearly our members. Um, it's not our money, it's their money. Um, we need to be maximising their returns, but we believe that there's a very clear case to be made for the way that we invest. And I think the encouraging point is that as we have let out in that space, um, the ability to influence both in Australia and globally is quite profound. There's a lot of other pension funds that look at what we do, have great interest in how we've constructed that portfolio, what have been our learnings, what have been the risks we've needed to manage, et cetera. But, um, yes, yeah, so, and even, look, I guess there's even a personal journey for me into this uh, having worked on uh, throughout my career and initially in mining, then into investment banking and then into aid development and microfinance to now find myself in a superannuation fund that um, is obviously working in a heavily regulated financial sector, um, but with a very clear uh, lens and an anchoring point around um, the way we invest and the values that underpin our investment. 
I suppose there's a there's a, um, a living example even in my own journey around what shared value looks like and uh, one that I'm certainly um, enjoying very much in in the role that I have. Yeah, fantastic. I think just, I mean, I imagine there are a number of ways that Christian Super uh, measures the the impact of the investments that you have. And I'm interested specifically in the sustainable development goals because you mentioned those earlier. The SDGs are a topic that uh, we discuss a lot on this podcast and specifically how we can promote the uptake of the SDGs. Um, what sort of interaction have you had with them at Christian Super? Yeah, so we have done. Uh, so we have initially mapped um, our portfolio um, in terms of attribution or contribution to the sustainable development goals. And again, there's been learning in that particular process. Um, we that's a work in progress for us. Uh, the whole question of measuring impact, uh, as we are sourcing uh, investment opportunities around the world. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we will always be looking for. Uh, the blend or the combination between uh, uh, investments that will deliver the risk-adjusted rate of return that we need for our members, but equally, uh, you know, very well informed by a theory of change and, a, and, and an impact narrative that we believe is profound, that if our money wasn't invested there, the change would not occur. So there's a question of kind of attribution, which is an important part of the impact investing conversation right now. So we've, we've mapped uh, the portfolio to SDGs, um, we seek to report against those. And again, there's work in progress in that regard. But I think the SDGs themselves create uh, a very useful platform or a framework or language that uh, can help um, bridge some of the, um, I suppose, the cultural differences that exist between, say, the NGO actors, the corporate actors and so forth. I know many corporates are in the process of looking at SDGs and, again, how their work uh, contributes to those as are governments and not-for-profits. I mean, the clear call-out, as I'm sure you would all be aware, uh, is that um, the SDGs, meaningful progress against the SDGs will not be delivered by uh, ODA or charitable or philanthropic giving alone. There's a, there's a clear call-out for the private sector to, uh, to be contributing to the SDGs, both domestically and, and abroad. Um, and so, yes, we, we've made... Uh, the initial steps in that regard, um, but it's it's an ongoing work for us in terms of, again, how we measure impact in our portfolio, how we communicate that, and uh, that's a journey that, that many uh, other actors in the impact investing space are, are also on. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And, and I think one of the ways the private sector has been engaged with the SDGs is by being a signatory to the UN Global Compact, uh, I think the UN Global Compact has done a lot to socialise the SDGs amongst uh, many Australian corporations. Uh, but, yeah, I, I would say that it is still somewhat in its infancy. Australia is yeah. a notorious slow adopter of things like the SDGs, and I think there's probably quite a way to go before businesses know exactly how to map their activities against the SDGs. Yeah, we completely agree. I think generally, I mean, those who work close in the sector, you know, there's a degree of familiarity or literacy with those things. But for the general market, um, they might know of them. But as far as any nuanced or detailed understanding, I think we have a long way to go. And I think there's a concerted effort needed by all actors, actually, to help um, raise that level of understanding and awareness. Yes. Now, you're... 
in the unique position, as you've mentioned, that you have uh, been in leadership positions in both the not-for-profit sector and the finance sector. So you are uniquely positioned to be able to contrast the two. Uh, So what I want us to start with there, uh, what are the biggest differences that you see between the two sectors and what are the greatest similarities? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, my reflections, I think they can sometimes be a... uh, uh, an incorrect view that everything is rosy on the not-for-profit space because you are working for a bottom line that is ultimately a social good, that therefore uh, there'll be no politics, um, everyone will work well, systems will magically operate, etc. I, I think <laughs> I, I think that the, the first key insight that I would say is actually there's far more in common than there is in that there are differences in the sense that you have the same... Um, the same logistical challenges, the same political challenges, the same challenges around systems and processes. I do think uh, when I left Macquarie Bank, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed my season with Macquarie Bank, uh, but there was clearly a fundamental difference when you get out of bed every morning. When I came back to World Vision, we relocated to Cyprus with my family. Um, it's probably fair to say it was easier to get out of bed knowing that I was, um, I'd was i shifted career-wise back to the space where the bottom line that I was working for was actually transformational impact and change in communities. Um, but that can be a fleeting motivation when you start to get into the complexity and the, the politics. And um, but, but there is obviously a, uh, there's a differential around what is the core bottom line. But I, I suspect even with the lens of shared value, that distinction is perhaps less apparent than it used to be. Again, the notion that somehow corporate commercial business must purely about be only about making profit and, you know, the NGO or the social sector is just about doing good. I think there's, there's, there's a significant intersection and overlap there and I guess that's really at the heart of the shared value conversation we had a little earlier. Um, what I see in common, uh, so I spoke to the, um, you know, the, the normal cut and thrust of complexities in politics and just... Uh, project management and change management, um, capabilities. I think there's extraordinary people working on both sides with great passion and heart for the mission of their respective organisations. I've been greatly encouraged, I think, particularly uh, over more recent years to see an acceleration of the flow of uh, professional capability between the commercial to the not-for-profit and back again because I think both organisations need each other. Um, there's, There's... assets and, and intellectual skills and capability in the not-for-profit space that the corporates um, need. Uh, but equally, there's there's an ability to leverage systems and processes at scale in the commercial space that is hugely beneficial to the not-for-profit space. So I think that crossover and that intersection is something that I'm seeing uh, grow um, all the time. Apologies for the background noise. One of my children has picked up a trombone here. <laughs> That's great. Look, we, we welcome musical instruments. <laughs> um, I think that is a really good... Oh, gosh. They're quite good. <laughs> they, they are. <laughs> I'll try to catch the No, no, it's all good. Uh, so, no, I think you've done great justice to the similarities and differences between the two sectors, and I particularly like that you've said the overlap is growing and not decreasing. Yeah. And um, that's certainly something I feel very passionate about. And it was a, a major reason that I started this podcast. And I think that's probably a good segue into 
a more existential question for you that I've been contemplating lately. And that is, do we need a distinction between the not-for-profit and the private sector at all? And, you know, 10 years from now, will we still have that distinction? Yeah, I think the the naming is problematic uh, for a range of reasons. The whole notion of not-for-profit, I mean, the language is increasingly being challenged and you'll see the emergence of the the notion of profit for purpose or or, or similar variations thereof. Um, Look, if you're in a not-for-profit space and you're not generating sustainable means to continue your business, you'll go out of business. So, again, I, I think the distinction is becoming increasingly blurred. Um, and, yeah, look, I would, I would, I think a dynamic that would see that distinction become even further blurred over time, it would be a good thing. Um, we're seeing... I mean, impact investing is an interesting lens to look through in that regard because you're seeing, um, even in the not-for-profit, let's say the, true, the traditional not-for-profit space or the NGO space, you've got a, a growing piece of work that's looking at how can the community assets and the capabilities that uh, the NGOs have developed over many, many years be leveraged and can intersect with, uh, with the capital markets and, and vice versa. You know, investors who are thinking, how can we invest our money in a manner that still generates strong, significant financial return, but also social impact? And so you've almost got a, um, a meeting of the minds in those two areas. And I think at the moment... Even in the market, we see there is a critical role for intermediaries who work in that space. And um, the metaphor I've used with some of my team is it's a little bit like a dance floor. And on the dance floor, you've got investors and bankers and a couple of superannuation funds. Hopefully, more will come. Uh, But you've also got NGOs and development practitioners. You've got government somewhere in that mix. And all three or other or or, or more parties are are trying to learn to dance together. Um, And there's a different language, a different... um, dialect, if you like, and there's a role for intermediaries um, that perhaps over time will be less apparent than is the case now. But I think right now you've still got um, a fairly significant level of building that's required in terms of infrastructure to link those parties actually together. But the potential is huge, um, you know, to think about impact investing or even superannuation. If I think about the, 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 the capital that sits, you know, the nearly $3 trillion dollars in Australia, if you've got consumers who are increasingly holding their funds to account to say, what's my money doing? I want it to definitely not be doing the bad stuff, but if it can be doing good stuff as well, um, I'm very interested in that. So, you know, you've got a consumer sentiment that will hopefully continue to drive interest and growth in investment coming out of that space into Australia. Equally, you've got NGOs or other actors who are saying we've got all these extraordinary community assets and projects around the world that are unfunded or that need capital. So there's a really interesting confluence occurring and in some ways impact investing sits at the very core of that, um, which is an exciting space, not without its risk and there's some challenges to navigate a path forward, but the potential is really significant if we can get it right. Certainly, and it's really encouraging to see that the value of intermediaries has been um, identified uh, in recent months by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and specifically Innovation Exchange. Uh, There's work around um, the Scaling Frontier Innovation Program, which specifically looks at how to increase 
both the number of intermediaries in Asia Pacific and also the skills of intermediaries. And uh, often those skills, um, that skills development is focused on gender lens investment. So I think there is a real recognition that, that the more intermediaries we have, the more impact investments we can have. And, and I find that really encouraging. Yeah, certainly. And for us, I mean, even for us, Christian Super is a as a super fund, we have spun out uh, an impact investing advisory and funds management group called Brightlight. And Brightlight uh, were really our board's heart and desire to see the learning and knowledge that we have gained or continue to gain in the impact investing space uh, to essentially um, make that more available in the market because I think there is a market-building element to the work we are doing and uh, uh, the expression of bright light in the marketplace is a good way um, that we can we can very practically contribute and support to that. So, And there are a lot of other groups who are doing great work in that space as well and uh, we celebrate the fact that we, we see the market growing. Yeah, certainly. Okay, so I wanted to ask you a question on microfinance because you have worked quite extensively in the microfinance sector. So the provision of microfinance has become fairly normal in development nowadays. Um, I, I suppose we still associate it with organisations like the Grameen Bank um, who you know, perhaps were the forefathers of microfinance. Uh, but financial literacy has only emerged in recent years as something that warrants greater attention. So how do we ensure that microfinance and financial literacy go hand in hand? Yeah, I think it's it's a really important question and, and it's been a challenge uh, in the microfinance industry for some time. And uh, look, there's, there are many, many microfinance programs around the world that have been extraordinarily successful. There are others that have had very significant challenges. And I think... Uh, the key to getting microfinance to work well is, um, yeah, first and foremost, a, a framing of holistic d- development in communities and understanding that if you um, provide a source of capital or loans into community without understanding some of the underlying social enablers or the risks um, around those things, then um, there's a greater risk that the program won't actually achieve the outcomes it's attend- intending to do. And I do think that financial literacy is is a critical part for that and whether that's in the you know uh just the you know going hand in hand with the provision of a microfinance program um you know small business development skills um there are a number of models out there that are working well i think there's as i said before some key learnings as to um underlying factors where programs haven't succeeded but i i think first and foremost the microfinance to work well requires a, a, a holistic lens of what's going on in community and understanding, again, how those uh, factors will complement each other or may potentially um, work at odds together. I mean, and that's just good development practice. Um, so, yeah, it's a good call out. I think it's a critical one for the sector as, uh, as things continue to evolve. Yeah, and as you've said, that that is just good development practice and something we talk about a lot on this show is is how no development intervention can be done in isolation. Yeah. You know, we can never build a hospital without acknowledging levels of education and we can never build a road without acknowledging uh, where the houses are and, and, you know, the rate of informal settlements and things like that. So I completely echo that point that it is about taking that holistic view. Now, I'm aware of the time. There's two questions I want to ask you before we 
finish. Um, the first uh, sort of a contentious ish- issue in the development sector is the role of religiously oriented not-for-profits and yeah. to a lesser extent the role of religiously oriented um, funds like super funds. Yeah. Um, how do you navigate those debates? Because I imagine it's a question that gets asked of you a lot. Yeah, it does. And so clearly, I mean, our, our brand, our membership, um, we are a Christian fund, very deeply faith aligned in terms of our faith deeply informs who we are, how we invest, um, and all of those elements. So, so that's 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 a central part of who we are. I, I do think, um, in terms of how we invest, that element of faith. Uh, in fact, I was asked a question earlier today: Does Christian super invest? Do you have any impact investments in Muslim countries? And I said, of course we do, because we're actually in the business of poverty reduction, and poverty doesn't. Um, translate through a faith lens. Um, there are certain markets that we may not invest in, but it's nothing to do with a faith issue. It's actually about a market access or a risk issue. Um, and so I, I think within the space, the faith-aligned actors play a critical role, as do many others. My own view and my own journey in this space, and as a person of faith myself, um, I, I think, and, and having, having lived and worked in some of the toughest places on the planet... Um, I struggle sometimes to think about how we can conceive of a development construct that doesn't include a consideration of a faith narrative or, or a dynamic. And so you think about a complex place like Afghanistan or Pakistan where you've got, you've got power and politics and development issues that um, the, the, the integration of a faith lens is a critical element of a community's journey. And so um, arguably the faith actors can bring um, skills and capabilities to the table of faith literacy or an ability to engage through a lens of faith that other non-faith actors may not be able to do to that extent. Um, so I, I think there's a role for all. And clearly there's examples you can point to where there's been missteps or and every organisation will have a different set of criteria around how and where it engages. But I think, and even look at, at various um, points in time, there's been you know, much broader development discussion about the enabling role of faith in uh, in a community development journey. Um, I always remember Tim Costello famously saying after the tsunami when people would ask him after seeing the devastation in Aceh, people would say, Tim, how can you believe in a God after you see all this? And, and Tim said the, the people in those communities said after these things, how can we not believe in a God? And so, so I think there's a really important role that faith actors play, but it needs to be complementary and it needs to be grounded in good development practice. Um, yeah, so that, I think that that's a, and it's an open discussion, um, but, I, but where I've seen it work well is where people engage again through the, the lens of holistic community development. What are, the, what are the dynamics in a community? And typically we find in the vast majority of developing world locations there will be an active faith construct in communities, whichever it happens to be, Christian, Islam, Buddhism or other. And so the ability to understand that and to work with the faith leaders in a culturally appropriate way I think is a significant enabler of development. Fantastic. I completely agree. Uh, you've, you've put that so well. Now, the last question I want to ask you, I usually wrap up our interviews by asking uh, the, the CEO or the leader I'm speaking to what, success looks like in 10 years for their company mm. I'm going to make it a little bit more difficult for you just because you do have so much experience so what does success look like in 10 years for the private sector in Australia broadly mm. great question 
Look, I um, I think there are a number of areas that I would point to that can um, where we see significant progress, and I think success actually looks like um, when you see. We talked earlier about the lines between the uh, profit for purpose and the commercial sector. Success is when those lines are even more blurred. Uh, when you have uh, coalitions of groups working together to achieve uh, profound poverty reduction by leveraging synergies at scale across the different actors and respective missions, whether it's a social purpose or a commercial purpose. Uh, success is where um, maybe even the language of shared value is not a, a new construct or something that um, is not understood, but it is simply uh, a fully integrated part and understanding of the way uh, businesses actually operate. And the final piece I'd say is that success is defined by um, a significant um, flow of capital to support development poverty reduction around work and commercial capital. So we, where we've got, uh, again, the intersection between markets, consumers and development needs in a way that is, is transformative. I think that's a, that's a bold vision. The Sustainable Development Goals, goals call us to that vision. I think it's achievable, um, uh, but, and we see the underlying elements of um, those the driving factors: consumer engagement, um, commercial interest, and the profit for purpose interest. That that means it is eminently achievable. But uh, we, we've all got to work hard to uh, to get there. That is a bold vision, but I completely agree it is totally achievable, and particularly with leaders like you in the sector. So thank you so much for your time today, Ross. This has been so enlightening, and I'm really grateful that we could have you on the show. It's a pleasure. Really, really glad to, to share some thoughts. 